0: Hello, this is Rebecca Atkinson-Lord and these are The Legacy Tapes, a series of conversations with brilliant artistic directors around ideas of what it means to leave something behind in the ephemeral medium of theatre. And I'm here with Erica Wyman at the RSC on Earlham Street um, and she's brilliant. um she started life uh well i don't know where you started life actually but um yeah, she's worked at uh, the tricycle and the et and ett as an associate she was the artistic director at southwark playhouse and the gate she was part of the first contingent in the claw leadership scheme then she went and ran northern stage and did brilliant things and now she's the associate or assistant artistic director deputy deputy Deputy, Deputy, damn it i did my research and then forgot now she's the deputy artistic director at the rsc um and a bit of a uh you're a bit of an icon i think that's very funny Um, that can't can't be true but thank you (laughs) um Hmm. uh, and we've just been chatting for about 20 minutes about um well, politics and arts and the world and stuff. Uh, So maybe let's start
1: with, um, why on earth do you work in theatre? Yeah, that is, of course, for me, the most difficult question, genuinely, because I think a lot of artistic directors work in theatre because they're sure that they're really, really brilliant at making theatre. I get a little more certain as I get older that I am uh, pretty good at making theatre, but what I want to do is shift the way the world thinks and feels. That's what I want to do. So I frequently ask myself whether this is the best way to thread that needle. Mm. And I always have really, and I've had lots of breakpoints in my uh, working life where I've gone, oh, this is ridiculous. I've got to immediately stop because this is this is definitely the very hardest way to make a difference <laughs> to the world. Yeah, and then probably. once in a blue moon, you feel like you're making a difference artistically, i.e. on stage, and the only people who are coming are people you knew already. Uh, or the opposite you you get lots of people to come, but you don't feel like you 've shifted the way they think or feel so so, why do I still do it i i I'm actually having an optimistic moment about the theater uh sitting here a few weeks after the referendum, mm-hmm. unlike a lot of very demoralizing general elections in my life uh, this This was equally demoralizing, but those elections have made me often feel like fleeing and doing something else you know, being working politics or running a charity or just standing up and screaming uh, which might be more effective than raising a lot of money from complex sources and putting on a play and hoping people will come and this time I don't feel like that because I feel very clear that we need new stories and we need stories we need stories in which we can recognise ourselves and imagine a future that we currently cannot imagine. We're, fight, we're struggling, I think, as a nation in all sorts of ways, mm. to imagine what our story's going to be. And that's, uh, uh, actually, as a theatre maker, that's quite thrilling. Plus, it makes me feel like theatre's not a bad way to try and um, make a difference. And I suppose that's always been true. Mm-hmm. That's lurked under those doubts. There is one more bit of the answer, which is more eccentric, which is that I, the one time in my life I moved firmly away from the theatre after university was into philosophy Um, and I was convinced, albeit briefly, that that's what I wanted to do and it was a bit lonely for me and not conversational enough Um, but I think that's, at my best, that is what I do, programming theatre and directing plays is a form of sort of active social communitarian philosophy collective philosophy yeah
0: that's really that's a really <laughs> nice thing <laughs> good. good answer um, and and how is changing the world going good. i'm paraphrasing yeah sure about. yeah um
1: do you know it's going better than it might have been going because i which just comes to your point i think i have been with the rsc for three years and i for some of that time and in the months before I took up my post, which was invented for me, I've had very deep, I think totally reasonable doubts about whether from the inside of an institution like the RSC, with all its history, you can make enough of a difference. And actually, this year particularly, I've started to feel the benefits of the sheer reach and scale of the RSC, and of Shakespeare and Shakespeare's plays, um, and I, so I'm feeling as though you can, you can, yeah, you can change the world just a little bit. Because, for example, there's a lot of fear about Shakespeare. There's a lot of um, conviction or prejudice that he belongs to a certain class of people, yeah. to people who've had a fancy education or university education, or to people who were born seeing his plays or reading his plays, you know, around the fireside in some imagined golden age. Um, or he belongs to something that sounds like the early days of the BBC, where he was good for you, and you ought to understand his place. Mm. Of course, I should go. We should go, and it's edifying to go, and it's 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 uh, e- educational in the worst sense. Of you go, you go to do something that hurts, but medicinal might be a better word. <laughs> uh, so we know all that prejudice exists, and we know t- quite a lot about why. you Know generations of. Um, children and young people of which I was one uh taught Shakespeare by sitting around in the classroom reading a line a- out each and being asked if you understand it and the language is you know, 400, 420 years old so sometimes you don't understand it and if you aren't playing a part in a story that you can grasp and you're not speaking it aloud with any sense of drama or action uh, y- you're even less likely mm. to understand it so we know why but is really really easily fixed so it's a huge pleasure in my current role in seeing children as young as you know five six seven through to you know people in their 80s and 90s discovering Shakespeare for the first time realizing that he doesn't belong to somebody else he belongs to to them and that um, most teenagers I know have, have felt like they want their flesh to melt away and um, most People in the latter years of their life have had moments where they think, have I achieved anything at all? Have I got it all wrong? Do my children hate me? Mm. (laughs) Am I am I losing my mind? Uh you know, I could go on. There are and and I you know, I've just done Summer Night's Dream in this rather unusual production where we, we worked with 14 different amateur theatre companies in 12 different places around the United Kingdom which brought lots of amateur actors to the Royal Shakespeare Company, who's, for whom Shakespeare wasn't necessarily something they felt confident to do, and it brought even more, way more people to come and see them, Yeah, see their mates, and see their uncle, and see their dad, and it was fantastic, and meanwhile there was nearly 600 children in, from uh, schools, again, all around the country, who took part in Titania's ferry train, and spoke the fairy blessing at the end of the play and it's been for me it's been a transformative experience of seeing how swiftly people for whom Shakespeare feels alien and strange and unfamiliar and difficult and a bit scary can can not only do it but fall in love with it because the idea that someone speaks to us over 400 years and does speak to us about love and dreams and fear and tragedy Mm. and and, and the nation and um, the complexity of trying to rule the nation and all sorts of things that just seem so so alive and urgent and um, yeah that's not going badly it does feel like there's something about changing people's minds about Shakespeare that is 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 changing the world in a small way and meanwhile I keep putting on programming and directing and um, dangerously difficult place um which is a different way of changing the world because handfuls of people see them and lots of those people have thought some of those things before. But I feel like they're they're a kind of rehearsal for stories we need to tell about ourselves that are really difficult to articulate. Mm -hmm. So we need our our playwrights to begin to articulate them. So I, I worry less than I used to that the people who come and see those plays might in the main be people who are already thinking either radical thoughts or, or, dare I say it, socialist thoughts or or thoughts about the really hard-to-say things, you know, about race, for example, mm. or gender or inequality or poverty. Or They're hard to talk about those things. We need our writers to, to, to say them. We need actors to put those words in their mouths and to find ways of, 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 of practising saying those difficult things in order, to, I think, to start telling new stories about ourselves. Yeah, because if you've seen someone say it, then it's safer for you to say it yeah. one day. And if you've seen someone say it and you've felt something, whether you felt anger or as though you've been misrepresented or as you firmly don't agree, or whether you felt something that's more like recognition, and you felt something cathartic or something sympathetic, either way, either way you have opened up a possibility that will make it more possible to have that conversation and that debate and in fact i sometimes think it's more powerful when you see something that you violently disagree with because you come out (laughs) furiously defending what you do think about Mm. the world and that's good too
0: yeah and i think sometimes just letting the i think when i really disagree or things that make me really angry it's rare i see things i disagree with because you know i'm an arty theatre person but um things that make me angry for whatever reason and I come out in these blind rages and just figuring out why I'm so bloody angry is really useful it's touched a nerve of some kind yeah yeah and sometimes it's about I mean sometimes it's just about the sheer cost of that particular piece of scenery (laughs) or what I could do with that um but other times I think it yeah it tends to be about assumptions or about lazinesses like I saw we before we started recording we were talking a little bit about um uh, dialects and and how people speak and I mm. saw a production set in the East Midlands, in which in a, in a mining it was about m- the mines, and um, and someone said oh, I'm just going to eat my cob, and got out these amazing like King's mill sandwiches and I was so angry the person <laughs> I was with had to hold me down because a cob is a crust it's a crusty cob like if you're from the Midlands, yeah, yeah. you know what that is and it and it made me so angry that. That the people making that piece had been so careless yes. with my history. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and 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 it felt like class tourism, cultural yeah. tourism. It
1: made me, oh god, it made me angry. I'm still going on about it. Yeah, there are many things that make me angry, but one of them is uh, the casual assumption that uh, you can get an actor to do a Geordie accent because mm. uh, you mainly can't. A and B, why would you? And there are so many fantastic North East actors. But uh, we do casually assume that we can uh, uh, just put on other people's clothes. Of course, that is partly what acting is. Of course, it is. And versatility is thrilling. And I work for an organisation unusually still still operates a very thoroughgoing rep system. So you might have to be a Geordie in one play and a and a you know a, a fancy king from the southeast. Although hopefully that will change too in the next play. But still, I think we. I think you're right, I think careless is a very good word. We are careless with what we consider to be authenticity. And we do everyone a disservice because you know, we're not giving people jobs yeah. <laughs> so That's not intelligently representing
0: people's culture. Yeah. I think also the thing that made me really cross is there was a, there was, um, like a 16, 17-year-old lad next to me and his dad just sitting next to me. And, and they come from the town where this play was set to watch it. Were so and, and they were like it's not a cop like, yeah, it's not yeah, is yeah, it yeah, yeah. and we <gasps> had our little thing um, but they, they the, the cost of a London theatre ticket and a train to London like I remember trying to do that and it costing everything I could scrape That's together a fortune, yeah, yeah. it's a bloody fortune yeah. and so the very now. least you can do is be respectful
1: yeah yeah I agree however I think the other thing that we don't do well is give status and um and, and frame thoroughly work that is made all around this country mm. you know the, the question always arises should it come to london i use it going to be a commercial hit um as opposed to should more people see it should more people see it and how can we make that happen and it, it, it occasionally happens but you're reminding me of a project at northern stage that i was very proud of and it was a this was a really particular conversation about how to make that piece, which was an adaptation of the novel Apples by Richard Millwood, um, and having to explain to quite a lot of Southerners that Middlesbrough is not, A is not Newcastle, and then they go, Oh, I know that, I know that. Nonetheless, assuming that people might talk with a similar accent, which they don't, and that particularities of some great stuff in there about particular bits of food and drink that you can only get in Teesside. Um and then I remember Daniel By wrote a brilliant piece. Did you see it about the dinner about the light? Oh no! Oh right, you tell me about your. Oh, Daniel he wrote bai a piece too. about the about the accents. Okay. Yeah. Oh so, yeah. Um, okay. So you know Dan was already quite an established theatre maker, mm. and um, you know moving in all sorts of different circles. Not somebody lacking confidence certainly from the outside, although he may disagree, and he wrote this beautiful piece in response to Apples that was simply about the great pleasure of hearing your voice on stage. And that just changing everything. And of course, it really particularly interesting with the North East voice because people were shocked that he didn't consider that he'd heard his own voice with endless, endless yes. Newcastle voices or, yeah. or, or Gateshead voice voices, but he hadn't, he hadn't, he hadn't heard his voice he um th- 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 that piece is a
0: brilliant piece and there's another one that he wrote not long after or slightly i think not long after slightly before um about seeing a play from from the northeast in which people sit down to dinner and it was lit as though it was the evening He's like, <laughs> no dinner's a dinner's yeah. lunch which dinner's nice was actually dinner it was,
1: um, yeah. And then it's your tea. That's yeah.
0: Which I think is his. That's my his his dinner is my cob I think. That's yeah.
1: The, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, we are we are casual about it and um and careless and we do ourselves no mm. favors. And I think there's an interesting thing that like I've
0: I because I'm from the Midlands and I grew up seeing, once I was at school I saw a lot of things. The like RSC we used to go in trips coaches. It was very exciting. Uh, and try and drink in the pub when we were underage before the show (laughs) and all that stuff and and i remember seeing a production of midsummer night's dream and the only time i'd ever heard a a midlands voice and they were they were brummy voices on the stage at the rsc and it was the mechanicals and they were idiots i was like guys (laughs) what are you doing to me Yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) yeah well that's a whole other thing that dream but um which we could talk about, but uh yeah, I don't think that play is mocking those those six men and women men and women in my production, Men in Shakespeare's mind, at all. That doesn't what does isn't believed at all. all. He's he, he he thinks it's hilarious trying to watch people take terribly seriously the endeavour to put on a play when they don't know how to begin to do it. That's very funny, but it's um it's not at their expense. Because he also really respects how bloody hard it is and how um, and and with how much dignity they attempt to do it—that's mm. partly how, why we laugh. Yeah. And the, and it is, is almost always played as mocking and but there wasn't any androm. He was writing about people with 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 jobs, you know, carpenters and um, joiners and bellows menders who who were not amateur actors in their spare time. You know, Quince knows a little bit about putting a play on, but only really the basics and. Um, very much from a carpenter's perspective, props list, a list, <laughs> uh, a plan, a schedule, uh, you know, that's all you need. Um, but he's got a bit of a gift for verse and, and Bottom knows actually slightly less. He's obviously seen, seen a few fabulous performances and is really up for um, getting himself a bit of what that feels like. I can say I can't criticise that, that's totally why uh, I do this. Completely, <laughs> completely, it's why we all do it, isn't it? I mean, there's a, there is Bottom in all of us, I think. But anyway, yeah, I agree. Um, there is something entirely central to Shakespeare's writing about that bit of the world actually and and a project that I was really proud of was my first year at the RSC I did a Phil Porter play about the, the true story of the Christmas truce in 1914 on the Western Front and one of the reasons I loved making them, it was very affecting to make that 100 years after the truce itself and to be in the Royal Shakespeare Theatre on Christmas Eve and to uh, have have the the company try and tell that story exactly 100 years since it happened, all of that was fabulous. But a thing I thought might not be possible at the RSC that was very possible in Newcastle was touching people with recognition. So the opposite of your co-op story. Yes. You know, there was a there was a brilliant laugh every night when we talked about football. Uh, that was a particular sort of dark, slightly hollow laugh from the. Um, West Brom supporters, and the, and just here again to hear that in Stratford in that sort of crucible of national and international theatre making, um, it's heaven because mm. that is that is theatre. It's not the only thing you can do in the theatre. You can also make people imagine the worlds they've never dreamt of. But when you see yourself, when you feel like you are on stage, then something's possible that that, that wasn't possible before. Um, and these sto- you know, stories in which people are heroic, for example, or honest, emotionally honest, which is a form of heroism, I think, um, makes us bigger than ourselves, makes it, makes it more possible for us to reach further be more honest ourselves. And also,
0: there's something about seeing... Coming back to something I think we might be talking about before I turn the recorder on, but something about seeing someone that's you, that's like you, that could be you on stage yeah. in this in the cultural narrative, yeah, you know. Absolutely. It makes... It it, it embiggens you. Yeah. you know? <laughs> it, make, it makes yeah. you worthy of being part of that in a way that if you grow up in a lot of places,
1: you, you would never conceive yeah. of. Yeah, the narrative belongs to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you, therefore, your story is ignored. And I did... It's a story that... The, the story I'm about to tell has been told in a few places because it's touched us so much. But um, a parent in a school we work with um, had been quite sceptical about the school working with the RSC because they'd been worried that, well the parents there were worried that either the RSC didn't mean it and we'd let them down or that we would raise people's expectations in a way that, that couldn't be fulfilled by the world which I find absolutely devastating. The idea that children might have a glimpse of, and as you say, being part of that cultural narrative uh, having an ownership and a confidence about part of our cultural heritage that, that lives isn't heritage in that sense but that would be bad for them because life will only let them down and tell them that they, 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 they don't they don't they can't do anything with that so there was a there was a raft of skepticism in this particular school from the parents and one of the children came on a trip as part of the partnership to see much of Venice and Stratford. I think the play is interesting here. Because it's a play about everybody's rights <laughs> and it's a play about everybody's intolerance, everybody's prejudice. Mm. Um, but anyway, he went back home, and got, got his mum to come to Stratford, which was actually a huge investment for her, massive. They came, as I understand it, she came with him as a second visit, so they had to travel to Stratford and buy tickets to the show. It wasn't part of the relationship at school. Anyway, she came and she wrote a letter to her mistress saying, I've completely changed my mind. And I get it. And I, I thought it was, you know, fabulous and fascinating. And, and it's made me want to vote. And I find that very, very heartening, at the exact same time as I'm made miserable by how disenfranchised people feel in our country, from any kind of narrative, cultural, political. Yeah. But I find it very heartening that seeing a story about a series of merchants in a London that we none of us recognise, um, told in a modern dress production, brilliantly told, in my view, by Polly Findlay, to make us see the connections between the intolerance in our own in and in Shakespeare's play, uh, made made someone want to vote, mm-hmm. made her think that her voice mattered, that it was worth bothering to vote. Um, it, it's very moving, mm-hmm. and I think that, I mean I do think the plays do suggest exactly that. I think she's very smart to identify, and that is what they do, is say that full stuff matters as much as how. that, that, that the mechanicals matter as much as yeah. thesis and policy. He does it time and time again, the comedies and the tragedies. You know, that Romeo and Juliet have more to tell about society than the than the chief of police. You know, that there, is, that there is a sense in which it's always in the unexpected place that you will find the most... either the most radical or the most transformative view of power. And you... you you make it hard for people to see clearly when they have real power. So he's consistently getting us to see ourselves as part of a, a dialogue and a narrative, um, and all the best theatre does do that. But we do. I think we live through particularly bleak times in that regard. And I feel I think we've gone backwards. Um,
0: do you? So one of the questions that I've asked, I'm asking people, is: Did did you think about legacy? Like when you when you took any of the jobs hmm. d- at the point at which you took the job were you thinking about what you wanted to leave behind do you like is that something that enters into your
1: um ponderings um, uh, no maybe until this one weirdly this one behaved slightly differently i did think about it as I was on the brink of leaving mm. those jobs, but I didn't think about it in advance. No, um, I suppose in advance you just want to g- grab it and try, try and job. make you want to wrestle it, wrestle it, mm. and make it work. And I, you know, Northern Stage was the most um, challenging way, most transformative, and most rewarding of those jobs because it was. It was a very difficult moment in a life of Northern stage and I took over, the middle of a capital project but uh, um, a vision that went before me that had, that had seen its golden years and had sort of fallen away and didn't, it, the company didn't really know what its identity was, whether it belonged to that, that vision or whether uh, it needed to find an entirely new way of thinking or whether there was an older version from the origins of Newcastle Playhouse. It was very, it was very muddled about its identity had the money to, to finish building the theatre but, the, but the, the theatre building was completely delayed and stuck and, and the city had seen a lot of capital development and was a very exciting time in Newcastle and Gate, so very exciting, you know, mm. money really there to, to try and uh, find a brand new cultural identity for that place and successfully so I, I think. However, at all stage we were like the poor sister to a number of those projects at that point and I'd never worked there. I didn't know the city. I had to get to know it. I had a team that was very sad and, and not, not quite the right shape. So I had to make some difficult decisions about the team to take it forward. So it was really, really hard. So no, I didn't think about legacy. I just thought about getting through a year. Really. Yeah. I just think about running away. <laughs> well, if I, can't, if I can't pull off these seven things that all feel like they require a miracle, I'll just have to go. Yeah. And if I really can pull them off, no one will mind. I'll go, thank God she's gone. You know, yeah. she's, she, can't, she can do it. <laughs> So I used to think about that, whereas seven years on, because it was an incredible satisfaction to, to, to make most of those things happen. I had a happy team, it's a brilliant building, a sense of its place in the city, and the beginnings of its place in national theatrical life, which I hadn't had for a while. Had some amazing collaborations across the city and, and, uh, and across the country. Um, I did I did start thinking about how do you how do you leave with good grace, how do you hand this to somebody, how do you what is it you should be trying to protect, anything, you know, should you just say okay that I did my bit and it's yours now mm-hmm. mostly you should do that but some so sense of I mean the, what I did was the St. Stephen's project in Edinburgh which was a kind of legacy project because I yeah. guess I knew I didn't have a job at the RSC but I did know I was I was getting towards wanting to mm. do something else. And I wasn't gonna go until I had found a platform for Northern Stage that was outside of Newcastle and could attract national criticism and, and artists from a wider wider mm. reach and would sort of put a marker down as to the significance of, of work being made in North East. Mm. I was very frustrated at people not noticing what amazing things are happening yeah. in the North East by then. So that was that has something to do with legacy, yeah. Um,
0: and then when you started, because you start the RSC, and like you, you must, you must, you there must be filing cabinets of other people's legacies when you arrive. Yeah, you know, exactly. It does make sense. I mean,
1: I think I think uh, Greg would probably say that, actually, that you know, particularly because he's he had been there twenty five years then. Yeah. So so he's So he'd lived through a lot of those legacies. Yes. <laughs> he'd seen them come and go. But there hasn't been another one. But there hasn't been a Deputy Autistic Director. There had been Associate Directors. It was a very different system. It has something in common with those Associates. So There's a history of challenging the Autistic Director. There's a history of uh, uh, being the grit in the ointment for artistic Strategy. But what there isn't is placing one person really kind of very close to the Autistic Director to make that strategy together. It, it's still true that, you know, I... Part of my job is to nudge and, and be the grit. But there was a very specific thing that, that Greg did, which asked to ask me to head up on thinking around new work, which I do very closely with Pippa Hill, the literary manager. Mm. But that, that has morphed, I suppose, into being, uh, I partly insist on being this, of being a kind of guardian of making sure we're relevant, which is cared about by everyone at the RSC. It's very, very easy to take your eye off that when audiences are we're very fortunate they will come to see the plays sort of whatever we do they'll then tell us it's rubbish or tell us it's irrelevant but they'll come which is not true almost anywhere else and um so our task is to try and get uh, new people to come to find space for that and to make sure that all of those audiences are engaged in a debate that feels genuinely contemporary Mm. so i suppose i thought in terms of predecessors i thought about uh, Peter Hall and his relationship to new writing and also, you know amazingly adventurous new writing, form, formally adventurous, thinking about his relationship to Beckett, for example, focuses the mind somewhat. Of, cor- of course about Peter Brook and the way that he tackled Shakespeare and talks about Shakespeare. Uh, but also, what's been a huge influence on me is um, Buzz Body and the story of what she did at the other place and her relationship to, to Trevor Nunn and know that he backed her and that there was a sense in which there was an appetite and a permission to be as daring as that with the with the smaller work and she did a lot of Shakespeare which I'm not doing in the other place but she also was an activist and she had a very loud political conscience I think was very very good for the RFC Mm -hmm. so in that sense I was mindful of a lot of people's legacies But I suppose what I meant by and I thought about my own was as deputy uh, your influence, if you, if you aren't good at it your influence would be um, visible in the wrong sense so if I wasn't good at it my fear was that it would be really clear that Greg thought one thing and I thought another but he's the artistic director so we do what we do mm-hmm. want to, he wants to do to be good at it I think, it's still quite early days, is to create an environment where those two instincts can really feed each other, mm-hmm. so I, you know, I, 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 think a bit more like him than I used to, and I like to think he thinks more mm-hmm. like me than he used to, and that, and that's then a cocktail. So actually, the RSC is speaking with one voice, mm-hmm. but um, that has all its riches. Um, and and the two particular things in there, of course, are about diversity and about national, which is what we were talking about, national relevance and national, true national distribution of our work. Mm-hmm. There's lots of things I care about, but those two things, you know, I just bang on about (laughs) it ceaselessly until people listen because I can't, you know, I can't can't cope with the idea of an RSC that doesn't take those things seriously. Mm. And do you.
0: It it was interesting hearing you say that because at Oval House, Rachel and I were a co directorship. Mm. And we arrived as close friends and then we went through a period of really bloody hating each other. I think we like. I mean, we did speak, but there was a period where we didn't want to speak to each other, and we and we, you know, s- actually f- had to put in a formal structure to sort our shit out, and um, and and it was brilliant. I'm so glad that we went through a year. Of, mm-hmm. I'm so sorry to all the people that got kind of <laughs> <laughs> fell by the wayside in that time, but um, in in you know, in terms of understanding now what it is to provoke and to and to collaborate and, yeah. and to be the the grit in there. Oyster, mm. um. Oh
1: God, that was useful. Yeah, yeah. I I have found it easier than I thought I would because I've been in charge for a long time. I'm mm. <laughs> in mean, a long time. I took over at Suffolk in nineteen ninety eight, so you know, long time. And um, it's it's both both less and hell, of course, as you know, being in charge because the buck stops with you. But you can make change because you have decided you're going to. If you do it well, you've consulted properly, and you know you have the buy-in, or at the very least, you know exactly what people's anxieties are about that change, and you can take care of those anxieties well insisting mm. on that change. If you're not in charge, that's not true. You can only nudge, mm. and I'm very grateful to Greg for giving me, you know, I mean I couldn't wish for a better platform in terms of t- really being able to debate with him how we, how we go forward gives me a lot of room uh, and, and he listens brilliantly but I think I'm also um, ready for it because the thing that's lovely about <laughs> being deputy it feels a bit dangerous to uh, own up but you can say the thing that no one wants to hear if you're in charge you've got to reach a, a, a place that is, is the direction of travel is where you're going to go mm-hmm. So occasionally, of course, we all want to say, but isn't it infuriating that we have to move so slowly? Or isn't (laughs) it infuriating that, in spite of everything we've done to change perceptions, the perception hasn't changed? Yeah. And there is something I enjoy about that bit of my job, of it being useful sometimes for me to say that, because I don't have to then, of course, I help us to hone, I like to think I help us to hone that into an actual strategy, but sometimes it's just useful to hear the other side of things. yeah. So it's been, that's been liberating. I mean, I, I think being an artistic director is incredibly lonely. I loved it. Being sole artistic director, I loved it. Um, but I actually surrounded myself with lots of people in different kinds of roles that could provide that that collaboration. So it doesn't feel wholly new. It's just a shift in balance, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I guess the other thing is that there's a specific thing I've been asked to do, which is to bring... Uh, what I what I know, and what I think to the role, which is not always. You're not always confident that that's what's happened, mm-hmm. and that it's in itself makes it more possible to be deputy <laughs> because <laughs> I've effectively been trusted with being myself. Yeah, um, you know, in old maps there were those pictures of
0: clouds blowing wind. Yeah, you're kind of.
1: That (laughs) That sounds awful.
0: I've just heard that out loud and realised it sounds awful. So funny, but I know exactly what you mean. But you're kind of. There's this,
1: this influence, this slight influence on the direction of travel. Yeah, and sometimes that feels like wrestling soup. Of course it does. It's the Royal Shakespeare Company. We're very old. We're very big. Lots of people find us infuriating. Sometimes we're infuriating. So you know, of course it's hard, that and frustrating. But I've been impressed three years about how far we are prepared to bend and change and reshape ourselves. And there are ways in which we've wanted to reshape ourselves for a long time, but we haven't had the opportunity. Yeah. Um, so I have been impressed. To go back to your question, I did want to say a little thing about leaving the gate. Mm-hmm. So the gate was very influential because it was very hard. It was the hardest job I've done. I've just said North Social huge set challenges, probably the biggest suite of initial challenges I've had. The gate didn't look as hard as it turned out to be. The gate was rising high when I took over. It was an exciting time for directors. It's a long time ago. It was the millennium. Uh, but it was a much more celebrity-led culture in London. We were very excited about fancy Hollywood actors playing random parts that they were or were not suited for. And the press was quite hostile to ideas, to philosophy. Mm. I was interested in, in 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 the story of the celebrity, whether that was the actor or the director. Oh,
0: because it was the early days of full-on
1: rampant neoliberalism. That's right, as we now see it. As we now see it. <laughs> ah, hindsight. I yeah, that. exactly. And, yeah. I, and I had missed that, <laughs> I think. Or if I hadn't... Maybe I hadn't missed it, but I couldn't believe it was going to rule the world. Mm. It was really going to be the benchmark. And it really was going to be the benchmark. And I set out in that job to follow the mission, I, you know, the mission I received as a fantasy is a completely brilliant one which is to introduce the unfamiliar to London through international theatre How, what better more thrilling mission, particularly if you're someone who's interested in ideas and difficult questions and politics uh, and the world <laughs> the world really felt like my oyster in this tiny space so huge financial constraints I'm tell you about that, but you know, there's a challenge in that there's a thrill in that and there's a and there's a permission in that. There's a permission. You can you can dare. And I thought, and I was right in the end. But that you could fail. In mm. But failure was unbelievably painful in that climate. And I basically battled with the critics and my board for four years, where they just kept saying, "This is irritatingly worthy." None of the things I did was worthy in the sense of. Um, being uh, straightforward message plays or being uh, in, in aid of charitable causes they were all much weirder than that I mean work just didn't get near to how, how eccentric and intriguing they were but I found that incredibly painful and it made, it made me almost every day want to, want to stop doing theatre in fact when I left I said very clearly I don't want to run that theatre ever again which is comedy of course <laughs> um, but I meant it however as I left partly because the world turned so the wake of um, 9-11 and 7-7 yeah. uh, what has happened in the years between so it's, it's pre-crashed for quite a long way but, but I think the, the sense that our world wasn't stable had, had really taken hold in the years I was at the as I left A series of different journalists independently said what a fantastic tenure and I was totally flummoxed I mean I had felt like I was in a battle you could have told me while I was there and I think what they meant was I stuck to my guns. I had a set of principles that I was pursuing I didn't think that I was being belligerent or stubborn I genuinely didn't know what else to do there those Mm. were the things i wanted to do with that remit and that space but i did learn a lesson that your legacy has got almost nothing to do with how it feels at the time thank god um, yeah <laughs> yeah thank
0: do god. you do you think more about um do you think more about long-term planning or short-term survival generally and I think maybe there's also something about stability
1: versus innovation yeah this is hard of course because I have which is moderately unusual but I have moved from I've moved up scale every time I've moved wrong mm. so it is true that I thought more about survival I felt only about survival at sort of Playhouse I mean only mm. it's the only thing I ever thought about really you know there were moments of going well if we do that we'll stay alive and it might be good but it was a uh, wild, seat of the pants frontier town. The gate was moderately more stable, and while I was there, we we had some what would now be called portfolio funding for the first time. But I thought about survival artistically every day, as mm-hmm. described. Northern the stage, I thought about survival for the first two years, and then I started to be able to think along, and I loved it, actually. I loved thinking long because you can start... What I really discovered is the longer you longer term you think, the, more, the braver the people around you are with the short term. Mm. Because they start, they start by osmosis implementing a long-term ambition. Mm. But if you take the present out of their reach, so we would have these crazy strategic planning meetings that I love, where I'd say, look, it's going to be different people in 10 years' time. So let's think about 10 years, where we, we imagine all of us would have left. And if we haven't, we've seen everything under the sun what would we want it to be then? And what would happen almost every time? You'd, you'd have a little clutch of ambitions that really would take 10 or 20 or maybe 100 years. Mm. <laughs> but the vast majority of things we said in those conversations, we could implement immediately. So yeah. we did. So strategically, I think the long term is terribly, terribly good for everybody. And, and of course, I say that because now I have the luxury of a level of stability I've never known The Arts Council could have the courage to withdraw funding from the RSC completely, but it doesn't look terribly likely, and we work work very hard to earn our keep in terms of how we use our resources and how we raise our money. Proportionately, that public funding, whilst it is huge, is is a smaller proportion than almost any, any other arts organisation or any other theatre organisation. So, there is stability just in that in how much money we raise to contribute mm-hmm. to the social. So there is stability like I've never known. And therefore, the long-term is exciting, but it makes me use tools that I used to use at Southwark and the Gate to ensure that there's a bit of the IC moving fast enough, mm-hmm. responding enough. Yeah. So the Mischief Festivals so at the other place have been all about that, about saying, nope, we're going to commission people and give them very little time to write, hardly any design time. Um, by RSC standards hardly any. It's all sort of borrowing borrowing from the from the best of the fringe models, mm. but with the glorious resources of the teams at the RSC mm. to support those artists. So you get that nimbleness but with the glory. Well in the, when it works, yeah, you do. I mean sometimes it's mad of course because you go, why oh, can't I have this? Because over there they've got these huge automated sets and people get excited about it. And so you have to say no quite a lot and explain why not. Um but yeah, you do need a bit of Fast and furious to be genuinely responsive. Mm. So I think I think about those. I'm less yeah I'm less anxious about survival. The other, the other place, of course, I mean the projects don't survive if they're no good. Um, so creating a narrative that might get purchased, I and mean, the other place itself, the festivals, dream for that matter, could have just fallen apart if it hadn't got some kind of purchase. Mm. So that that is a different form, isn't it? Worrying about survival. I do remember every day how lucky I am (laughs) to have that stability. Good, and that it isn't always good for people.
0: That's kind of nice to hear from someone who's still at the at the gates, the gate level. Yeah, (laughs) it's still
1: there. Some of the very best work I've ever seen has been made on a daft shoestring, and I don't mean we shouldn't fund that work. I mean we should fund that work properly. But its scale and its and its speed of thought can be electrifying.
0: Um, so without in any way wishing you an early demise <laughs> um what you know, in a hundred years when they're putting your I don't know, page in the tome of British theatre or whatever you know, whatever matters. What what does it what do you want me to say? Hmm. or maybe this is two parts maybe this is what you want it to say and what should it say
1: it's very hard it's very hard I think because um, I'm so, I'm so hard bitten about what it will say <laughs> I, which I resist I don't want it to say she was the first woman to want to say that really I think it's the least interesting thing about me. My commitment to gender equality amongst other equalities, I'd love it to, I'd love it to say something about that, but she was a woman, which is effectively what that sentence means. And I really hope it doesn't say that. I hope in 100 years they won't find that inter- interesting. But there we are, they might. Um, I'd like it to say that I, I was that I had a set of values about how to live in the world that are very well modelled by the best kind of theatre and by the best kind of theatre making. And I stuck to them in spite of all kinds of external influences that would have me uh, work differently, work to a different goal, Work in a different way. Work with more noise about my work. <laughs> um, I think the thi- I think maybe what I'm telling you is what I'm most proud of. That you know, as I get into a different bit of my life, uh, you know, I'm 46. I haven't actually wavered very often from wanting to make theatre because it is a collaborative art, because it is truly about everybody's voice in one's rehearsal room having a value and everyone needing to know exactly what that contribution is in order to make kind of a marvellous whole that is greater than its parts. And that, that model of making is a pretty brilliant example of how human beings can work together and live together. And the other models of theatre making that are... Um yeah, I are oh, cheaper. <laughs> you know, I don't mean money. I mean I mean, that's the expensive version of living. is to work together with people and genuinely listen to them and trust a voice that isn't like yours. That's what diversity is really about. It's yeah. really trusting that a voice that you have never heard before brings at least equal value to your own as as yours does. that works slightly against a lot of the external influences on the theatre industry, indeed on every industry, which is, as you were saying before, the sort of neoliberal voice that says, yeah, but what's the story, what's the story, what's the story, why should I buy it? In my experience, audiences are immensely reasonable, sometimes unbelievably ambitious human beings, who most theatre makers don't have a the slightest interest in and if you extend that circle of collaboration to the audience amazing things happen Mm. Uh, but we get stuck we get stuck in ivory towers we get stuck in in, uh, a sort of simplistic version of marketing that treats potential audience members as idiots and um, if we really think about what it costs to decide to go to the theatre, good grief I mean I yeah, so I'd like to be around for someone who really got it about audiences. <laughs> I'm always so grateful. You know, they booked a babysitter, they probably booked parking or a train ticket or both. And as we know from booking patterns, the women have persuaded the men. So the men wanted to do something else and they had to yeah. pick up a brochure and tell the sto- story. we find so hard to tell, they had to tell it to their husband or their or their brother or their dad. And Not the, wave when boyfriend. they grumbled. No, and not wavered exactly and pursued it and put up with the guys going, Do we have to do I have to dress up and are we gonna eat and can I have a drink? Oh no because of the parking. Oh the hell that it mostly is for people to go to the <laughs> theatre. I just think it's amazing. Yeah. And if we treated that with proper respect, mm. we would diversify our audiences. Because the people we think about, it's their it's their hobby, it's their thrill. So it's like breathing. No, that's hard because it's the thing they want to do. Three nights a week, four nights a week. They're not normal. We're not normal. So that audiences, genuine respect for audiences, genuine respect for collaboration, and that the theatre is a crucible for ideas and progress of ideas, not a dirty idea in itself. Mm. It's, um, it's not. It's not. It's not elitist. To think that theatre is a really very good and very democratic principle for ideas. Yeah, it's um. Was actually ever thus.
0: <laughs> you said something really interesting. I'm writing a thing about um. just a, con- a, a consultation thing about what cutting edge is oh. in the theatre just now. I was because I, I think what the future of theatre is. I think the f- and it's sort of happening now. Is democratization is what like you know the fun palace movement and that kind yeah. of that sort of thing has begun to kick in and because if we're going to survive if these buildings it's the bloody buildings they're expensive if they're going to survive everyone has to own them mm. and come to them and yeah um Absolutely. and then i think the other one the other one might be kindness <laughs> and i think this is a mm. thing that i'm I've probably stolen from alan lane and that sense that it's the only place you go where you're not
1: consuming yeah and that is part of the difficulty with not being gracious towards our audiences is that they they are consuming Mm. they they, it is a transaction they are buying a ticket mostly Mm. it's delicious when they're not but they are mostly and that's okay because there is a value placed on the experience by buying the ticket Mm -hmm. but if we treat them as though they've bought a pillowcase or a a can of tomatoes. Better example. We will misunderstand them, the nature of that relationship, yeah. and that's right. It is. They are. Alan is very good at the fact that they are guests. They're guests. Um, we are hosts, and that's not just the front of house team. That's the event which is hosting them in our in our environment that we have created, and we can choose whether to make that environment as you can with any to a guest whether you make it kind of wonderfully unfamiliar you hold people's hand into something that is for example really formal there can be huge pleasures if you know the code mm. and you are and you confidently given the code and there can be we all we all love dressing up for a wedding we don't go oh lord I've got to dress up we don't know how yeah. to behave we love it it's a sense of occasion of course the and East, East. every Friday night you dress up yeah you, you know uh, it in fact
0: yeah one of the things that my mum complains about is that there aren't any now opportunities to address
1: yeah. up. Yeah, I think we, again, I think we, we simplify the problem, we say we've got to, by democratising what we mean is everything's got to be relaxed, mm. or all convention has to be wrecked. The convention is satisfying, whether that is the convention of a festival where nobody is dressed up and every, the artists and the audience are the same people. Mm all the conventions of formality that say, oh, this is this is an occasion, and I've, I've saved some money to do this, and it's a big deal for me, they're, they're, and everything in between. Those conventions need to be owned, need, need to be held confidently, and you wouldn't invite someone to your house with a set of conventions without telling them what they are and what the how they should prepare, but it can be quite fun to tell them those things. <laughs> it's this kind of event, this is what we do at Christmas, you know, that stuff. Yeah. That's that's what I think the theatre's got to get much better at, is, is really putting its arms out and saying we can still, if we want to, produce a three hour play that was written 400 years ago, but we need to assure you of what you need to do in advance and stop saying, oh it's for everybody. Because that does not assure people that they can get over the various thresholds mm-hmm. they, they, they see in their way. And, yeah, the, the, the work of Lo or People United or, you know, people who are really exploring sort of radical kindness really is, I, I agree, it's thrilling. I think kindness is also increasingly a very difficult thing to practice. It's harder when you are divided. It's yeah. easier when you think you aren't. So it's going to become very important to work out how we are kind. And you talk about how, you know, he was in Stratford in the last weeks of Dream with the Fairy Portal camp. Yeah. And there was absolute heaven for me in that being uh, a collaboration with the Royal Shakespeare Company, that that didn't matter at all to the people who came, (laughs) that it was free, that it was a complete alternative. And yet he, you know, he's a dear and thorough artist absolutely channeled the potential meaning of fairies as seen through my eyes, Greg's eyes and Stratford upon Avon's eyes. So the continuum, so there are ways in which you can draw a line between uh, totally informal, completely inviting, easy to come to engagement, that therefore can be transformative in its kindness, and walking walking through the door and buying a ticket. Um, and it, also it's terribly important one doesn't have to lead to the other you know mm. you know that's the thing that is i think dying away this idea that audience development is about building loyal audience members the world has changed and what we've got to build is goodwill which might be the, the, yeah. the match of kindness we have to be kind in order to build goodwill towards culture and then we will be much better place to experience it together wherever we experience
0: I'm going to stop there because I feel like that's the best. That's a really good ending. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from
1: Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.